0: The Power of Parachutes, you're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Coming back from space is dangerous. Astronauts in crew capsules are traveling at more than 25 times the speed of sound and need to slow down to just a few miles per hour to land safely back on this planet. After punching through our atmosphere, capsules like SpaceX's Crew Dragon use parachutes to make the final descent to Earth and help the crew land comfortably back on the planet. But parachutes are complex, and it takes an incredible amount of engineering to keep those astronauts safe during reentry. So what is it like plummeting from space and landing alive? We'll talk to Chris Sembroski, who flew on SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission, about the sights, sounds, and emotions of falling back to Earth. Then, Boeing Starliner is set to depart the station after its demonstration mission successfully reached the International Space Station. It's a big moment for Boeing and NASA. We'll talk with Frank Slazer, president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration about this moment in spaceflight history and what's ahead now that NASA can focus on deep space. That's ahead on Are We There Yet, here on WMFE America's Space Station. Returning to Earth after traveling in space is no easy feat, and to keep astronauts safe, space capsules rely on parachutes to slow the vehicle down for re entry. Parachutes are extremely complex, and slowing a vehicle down from 17,000 plus miles per hour to a speed safe enough to come away without injury is challenging. I reached out to Chris Sembroski, who flew on SpaceX's Inspiration 4 mission, to talk about the sights, sounds, and emotions of falling back to Earth. Chris, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Brendan. Thanks for having me.
0: So I'm reporting out the story and I'm learning about re-entry and it sounds um, absolutely terrifying. Uh, You're traveling at (laughs) 25 times the speed of sound, punching through the atmosphere, uh, and uh, hopefully you land safely back on Earth. Can you just explain what that experience is like? Can you put that into words?
1: Well, absolutely. You're flying through the atmosphere, trying to burn off all that speed, that all that fire and fury from the Falcon 9 rocket put into the capsule. Uh, And so the only way to get rid of that energy is by dissipating it through heat and that's using the heat shield. Uh, And so you're hurtling back through the atmosphere and you're seeing, uh, well, particularly from my point of view, through my toes, I was able to see the flashes of pink and yellow and white and see the sparks fly by until the window ablated over uh, and kind of fogged over once we got down. Uh, deeper through the atmosphere Uh, but it's it's a slow onset of g's and then it is a a sustained period of time where you really do feel like uh, someone is sitting on your chest for a while Uh, and then slowly those ease up and then you wait for those uh, incredible sounds uh, of the parachutes being deployed out you know through the pyrotechnics and and hoping they all inflate Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, when you're looking out that window that has got to be you you probably had the best seat in the house, right? I mean, you got to see out most most of the time, other than um, oh. your commander and pilot. <laughs> but uh,
1: yeah, uh, right. They're monitoring the screens, and uh, you know, but Haley and I could look down between our toes. Yeah,
0: and you just see this plasma and sparks and all that. Like, I would be absolutely terrified to see. That. <laughs> what was what was it like seeing all all that out the window?
1: You know, I, looking back on the video later, it looks more intense than it felt in the moment. I, I think we all knew what to expect. And so we were experiencing it, and the Gs felt like they loaded up really quickly when it was really only 0.2 Gs. But that's what happens. After being in microgravity for a while, you really start to get pretty sensitive to an onset of Gs. So we're thinking, oh, man, that's got to be 2 Gs already. And it really was 0.2 Gs. But... Uh, <laughs> you, Going through the atmosphere, it, you start to see those flashes, but it, there's not a whole lot of sound until you really get down you know, uh, pretty far into the atmosphere, maybe 100,000 feet or so, and then you start to hear the air go by. You're starting to see the plasma way before that, but uh, you don't hear that rushing of the wind until you get down at about that altitude, and that's when it starts to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, build up a little bit of that sound on the outside, mm-hmm. but the visuals are just incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. you're seeing those. You're, you do see those sparks, and it's like, oh wow, this is really neat. But you don't feel terrified or scared because at this point, the heat shield must be working because everybody's cool and comfortable.
0: <laughs> and there's nothing you can do, right? <laughs>
1: there's nothing you can do. There's no aborting, coming home.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so t- tell me about the parachute moment. So, so what was that? What What were you told that experience was going to be like, and then what was it like as as the sequence? began? What did it feel like? What did it sound like?
1: Yeah, I think that was our biggest area of unease when it came to the, uh, the entire mission. I know Jared really felt like that was probably the least unpredictable part of the, the space mission, uh, is hoping the parachutes deploy in time, and we really did train in the centrifuge to get a feel for what that you know sudden onset of G's feels like in that new direction. Uh, I mean, we've come through the atmosphere at this point, and before our chutes deploy, our seats go back into the, you know, um, you know, upright position. So we're no longer reclined again, and now we're in the chute deploy position. Uh, and so that, you know, so that when the chutes deploy, we get those g-forces right through our chest, Because remember, on Dragon, those parachutes are, you know, off-centered just a little bit, so that when you splash down, you hit the edge of the, the rounded bottom and not smack it like a belly flop. So uh you know, we're in the upright position, get a little bit better view out the window for me, and they did tell us to expect a couple of jolts you know we hear two loud pops you know the pyrotechnics blasting out the drogue chutes, and then you feel that you know bounce initially of those drugs you know catching, and then you start to slow down, and then you hear the other pa-pow of all the uh main parachutes being deployed and that's where you feel three more bounces of, of G-forces, and it's, it's not that intense shock. It really is kind of just a bounce, bounce, bounce. I mean, you feel it, uh, and then it's the same type of impact once you hit the water, um, that, that kind of onset. So They prepared us well in the centrifuge for that, uh, and it was really just those loud sounds accompanied with those jerks um, on our, against our backs. That's what we felt. I, I can say that uh, it was one of those good moments where Jared's calling out to to Cyan, saying, "Hey, they've got a camera view of the main parachutes out the out the nose cone in their camera views," and uh, so they had that pulled up on the monitor. And he's like, "Hey, get a picture of the monitors. That's that's the that's just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen." Uh, as the shoots all four fully opened up, and so I had to rip off my iPad and hand it over to Cyan so she could take a picture. <laughs>
0: You mentioned that Jared said that, you know, this was a concerning moment um, of, of the mission. And, you know, looking back, I, I know that as Commercial Crew was being developed, I, I talked to a few engineers and, and these parachutes are difficult engineering. Um, what was your concern uh, for this moment in the mission? I mean, these are, are literally responsible for, for your life at this point.
1: So I have a friend who's who's been an avid skydiver uh, for a while until some other things happened and he had to- put that hobby on hold but uh he's talked about stories where he would have uh, abrupt openings where it just absolutely shocked him and the way the parachute was packed maybe was you know just a little bit too quick in response and so there's that subtle you know balancing act that they have to play when they pack the chutes is that you want them to open quickly but you don't want them to open all at once and rapidly to essentially go you know like you're running into a brick wall Uh, And then at the same time, time, you also want them to open up and be successful. We had um, some backup procedures where we could manually fire some of the parachutes to come out, but uh, it's essentially activating the same relays. If the pyrotechnics on those bolts are going to fire, they're going to fire through the computer. uh, And they do have backups on the firing of those those mechanisms, but it's instantaneous, essentially. So uh, you're really hoping... That whoever was packing the parachutes that day was in a good mood and was following the checklist.
0: And and, and for you, they were right. I mean, it was it was a picture perfect opening, as, as as you mentioned. But you know, I, I know that that during um, the development of of commercial crew and, and even some some of these SpaceX um, Dragon landings, there were some parachute issues. I mean, mm-hmm. how how top of mind was that? Um, for you on, on this mission, that, that you know that, that this was challenging and that there could be issues?
1: I, I think at that point, we just accepted the risk. I know for me, it was just a point where, you know, these parachutes are either going to work or they're not. And I had a lot of confidence in the folks that actually did the packing and set up the mechanisms. But at this point, you just put your hands in the engineers and the technicians uh, and you just accept that risk. Uh, and, you know, I will say that you know, it was a couple months later, uh, all four of us just so happened to be uh, down at uh, in Memphis at St. Jude for an event. And we were all watching a reentry uh, of another dragon capsule coming home. And yeah, three of the four fully inflated and the fourth did not fully inflate. Uh, you know, so we were all just kind of glued to the phone screen at that moment, hoping that it would fully inflate after a while, which I think it eventually did. But. Uh, but uh, it it's always a little bit uh, jarring and your heart skips a beat when you don't see them uh, open up fully like they're supposed to in that nice, controlled, slow manner. Uh, you just get those butterflies going, but you just kind of hope for the best and accept that risk.
0: Mm-hmm. It's good to know because... Chris, every time I watch um, a Dragon return, including yours, um, I, I held my breath when I saw the drogue and then waited for them to fully inflate. So I'm, I'm glad to know that I'm I'm uh, reacting like a, an astronaut would in yeah. this particular situation <laughs> because it is scary, right? I mean, it, it, the the whole mission comes down to these these parachutes and they have a, a very important job to do. I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, how, how much of the engineering. And, and um, the technical side of things, did, did you learn about from SpaceX on these before you got into the capsule and, and launched to space?
1: Well, they trained us and taught us about the systems with the knowledge that we are going to be able to learn and understand what's happening around us and to know as much as we need to know to be able to affect our environment if need be.
0: I, I guess my final question for you, Chris, is, you know, how would you... You kind of described the experience before but i mean how would you describe your, your re-entry experience i mean have you had rougher airline landings than this i mean how, how can you compare it <laughs>
1: <laughs> right oh gosh i definitely had rougher uh you know landings on runways with some crosswinds uh, if you're flying into missoula montana you're coming through the mountains and uh you're going uh, through those different thermals and you're in a turboprop and uh, it's jarring and I've had moments where the gear didn't come down And so, you know they, the pilot pulls up at the last moment and you go around again uh, Dragon uh, Was exceptionally a smooth exceptionally smooth all the way through the atmosphere going through the s-curves ter- S and and making those turns to the atmosphere and seeing the cloud shift and the shadows change and the light change direction it was all just smooth. And by the book, um, and it was just actually very unlike the simulator where nothing went wrong. And so we were all very happy that it went just according to plan. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've all experienced rougher landings than what I experienced splashing down in the Atlantic. (laughs) Let
0: me, let me throw you this one final question, Chris. Um, you know, you've talked with, with, um, some astronauts who've who've been on Crew Dragon, I I assume. But um, what advice do you have for the astronauts that may be flying on on Starline or what to expect for um, their re-entry back home?
1: Yeah, I would say be very observant and record everything that you can if you're allowed and pass along that information. Uh, Not everything is sent down to the engineers through the telemetry. It's the personal experiences of the crew and the word of mouth information that really can change the game and improve safety for the follow-on mm-hmm.
0: Did Were you involved in that? Did you chat with SpaceX engineers like a debrief after, after
1: your flight? We absolutely did a debrief after and uh, shared a lot of good information uh, with them that's going to help the other crews out that are flying dragon and potentially, um, starship when it flies. So the overall experience matters, uh, how you feel through the whole process matters and it can improve that process that, that continuous feedback look, feedback loop of information. I mean, you get that information in front of, in front of engineers and they are just so excited to be able to reiterate on that and make the next process better.
0: That was Chris Sembroski, who flew on SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission last year. Still to come, Boeing's Starliner made it to the space station, ushering in a new chapter in space exploration. So what's ahead? A conversation with Frank Slaser, President and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration about this moment in spaceflight history. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Boeing Starliner is set to depart the station after its demonstration mission successfully reached the International Space Station. It's a big moment for Boeing and NASA. We'll talk with Frank Slazer, President and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space, about this moment in spaceflight history and what's ahead for NASA now that it can focus on other things. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity. and and appreciate uh, your insights today. Uh, Frank, a pretty stunning image. If you were on the International Space Station right now, two commercial vehicles docked to the station after uh, Boeing's Starliner successfully made it to the station. Can you put this into context? How big of a moment is this for both the commercial space industry and
2: also for NASA as an agency? I think it's a tremendous moment for both of them. I think it's clear demonstration that the commercial industry is maturing and actually has matured quite a bit to the point now where we have two commercial spacecraft docked to the station that are capable of bringing crew up and down. You might recall back when we lost the Challenger Orbiter back in 2003, our only way of getting crew up there was the uh, Russian Soyuz spacecraft. And that's been true pretty much until SpaceX started with their uh, Dragon 2, or their Crew Dragon uh, spacecraft. And, uh, but but truly really to get a commercial system going, you want to have competition, you want to have more than one provider for redundancy and backup purposes, and all these things are happening now, and I think that's going to bode well for the future that NASA is moving towards where low-Earth orbit is going to be done from commercial uh, platforms once the ISS is eventually uh, retired in 2030, and uh, moving forward being able to bring people up to space uh, without NASA's involvement necessarily, just because of Private companies have these spacecraft, and private companies will have space stations in low Earth orbit.
0: Mm-hmm. Frank, you mentioned that this shows that the commercial space industry is maturing; it's it's um, accelerating. Um, is commercial crew itself was was that kind of the program that was that was the trailblazer? It, it was that the one that was kind of propelling this development, or what? What do you credit its role in? Getting us to where we are when it comes to the commercialization
2: of low Earth orbit. Yeah, you know, to be, to be clear, commercial space is, is really decades old. Uh, it goes back to uh, commercial launch vehicles, which started uh, being deployed by the United States and, uh, and after the Space Shuttle Columbia, Excuse me, uh, was lo- Challenger, Excuse me, Challenger was lost back in the 1980s. Uh, And commercial satellites have been around for decades, uh, mostly geosynchronous satellites. But what's different here is the fact that these commercial capabilities include human spaceflight. And human spaceflight has always been obviously, understandably, one of the most difficult challenges, because you don't want to lose a crew. Uh, But commercial companies have gotten to the point where uh, they're able to develop systems that can keep crew alive and fly them in space. And I think that's just the the kind of maturity you want to see as we become more of a spacefaring nation.
0: SpaceX successfully demonstrated its its human launch capability back in 2020. Um, the next step for Boeing will be doing that as well. But Boeing has faced some criticism that it's it's taken a, a bit longer to get here. It's cost more money for NASA. Um, is that criticism warranted, do you think?
2: Well, objectively, obviously, there's a difference in how soon the two systems started working. And objectively, there's, a uh, I think, been more you know, investment by NASA in, on the Boeing side. But to the same point, I would, I would also say that the Boeing has also stepped up to the plate. Uh, they flew this mission on their own nickel. And so uh, at the end of the day, when both systems are, are fully functional, the important thing is that we as a nation are going to have two independent capabilities. And by the way, there's more coming online in the next few years with uh, uh, the uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation, actually, Sierra Space, I guess is their new name, uh, is, is developing something called Dream Chaser, first to provide cargo capability to the ISS and eventually to provide uh, crew capability as well. And so you've got uh, really a, a, a lot of U.S. industry interest in uh, accessing LEO uh, for crew. And you see a lot of other companies looking at uh, developing these low-Earth orbiting space stations for that same purpose. So it, it's just an exciting time, and I think it's really it's a really positive time where NASA's kind of, uh, you know, helping them all step to the plate of being able to do this commercially, and then NASA's going to increasingly focus more and more on uh, human exploration activities in other parts of the solar system. Mm-hmm. I do want
0: to talk about that in just a moment, but I want to go back to something you said about how you know, this is Boeing is paying for this on their dime, um, and that's because of, of the way that the contract is structured. Right, this is what's what's called a, a fixed price as opposed to a cost plus. Um, and, and we recently heard from NASA Administrator Bill Nelson saying that you know this is kind of the path forward to you know make make it work financially for NASA to have these fixed price contracts. Um, what, are, what are you hearing from the industry side of things? Is is this kind of the best path forward for both, you know,
2: these these commercial partners and, and for the agency as a whole? So fixed price makes sense in a lot of cases, and it's actually been used for quite a while for launch services. So NASA has launch services with uh, United Launch Alliance, with SpaceX, with some other providers, uh, such as Northrop Grumman. And uh, they are actually, you know, there's a catalog, essentially, of launches and, and prices that are provided by the, by the industry. And, and that's because launches something we've been doing for over sixty years. It's repeatable. It's well understood technically. There's a there's a significant market uh, of not only US government, not just NASA, but DOD, uh, and, and NOAA as well as a large commercial market, both domestically and internationally. So for places where, it, just like with, the, with an airline or just like with a, a terrestrial mode of transportation, you know what you're doing and you're dealing with a market where you know, the, the, you're, there's a lot of experience out there in industry, um, I think commercial uh, uh, fixed-price procurements can make a lot of sense, and they have been used in the past. And I think the administrator is reflecting that going forward in the future. I think we're, it may come into some challenges, and, and he later, I think, kind of clarified a little bit in his uh, next testimony that happened on the Hill last week. Uh, there are other circumstances where uh, you might have more development risk. You might be dealing in an environment where the technology is new or unproven or the, the environment is completely new or unproven where they might have to take more of a traditional role or more of a, a modified role. But uh, but certainly, as commercial space capabilities become more robust, uh, it only makes sense that NASA would do that, and it makes perfect sense that they would do that in particular with uh, launch and with uh, crew services.
0: Frank, you, you alluded to this before, um, and this is something that NASA has talked about um, quite a bit, about uh, some of the benefits of having commercial crew providers, is that they can focus on other areas of exploration like deep space um what does that look like now now that that we've got spacex's uh commercial or or spacex's crew dragon taking crew up there and boeing on its way to getting that certified and taking crew up there now that nasa can focus
2: on other things what is that going to be what does that look like well, I think exploration is clearly what we're talking about, human exploration. And and going back to the moon, and here again, uh, NASA is looking to utilize uh, commercial uh, uh, companies to provide capabilities. And and to be clear, it's always been the commercial industry has done these things. When you look back in the Apollo program, the new lunar module was built by Grumman Corporation. Much of the Saturn V was built by Boeing. Upper stages were built by McDonnell Douglas. The capsules were built by Rockwell International. There are always private companies that are doing this. What's happening now, though, is instead of NASA being down on the dirty details of, of everything that's going on, they've got oversight, they've got requirements, they've got, you know, basically the ability to make sure that these things are, are safe and going to meet their needs. Uh, but but the industry is allowed to pursue their solutions more creatively. And I think that recognizes the fact that the industry is mature and they've got a lot of capabilities. And so naturally, NASA's tapping into that. and I think that's a great benefit going forward. We're going to see uh, NASA sending astronauts to the moon probably within the next four or five years. Uh, maybe a little bit sooner than that if they can get uh, get up in 2025. I think that'll be a little challenging. But uh, if you get back to the moon on twenty you know in the mid 2020 s, Uh, you would see us having regular uh, missions to the moon before the end of this decade and and that would be incredibly exciting both in terms of understanding the moon identifying what resources are there we can tap into to aid in other solar system exploration but also to develop the experience of living and working off planet and that's the thing we can do nicely at the moon which is a three-day trip to get to uh and and prepare ourselves to be able to go on to mars which is a you know about a 270 day minimum round trip uh, activity. It's a, it's a much more challenging, um, a much more challenging environment. I said I said round trip. Actually, I actually meant one way uh, trip. So you're dealing with a with going to Mars is just so much tougher than going to the moon. But moon will provide us the opportunity to learn how to do these things in space.
0: Mm-hmm. And Frank, you you are someone who who comes to or the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration with nearly forty years of experience in this industry. And I'm here in in Central Florida. You know we've seen the SLS rocket for Artemis One mission on the pad, we are on the threshold of a brand new chapter of deep space exploration. What is your reaction to seeing this and and knowing that, you know, we are mere weeks, if not months away from embarking on this new journey?
2: You know, it's really good. I mean, it's really an incredible time to be alive. You know, I was, I'm old enough, I was actually 40 years in the business, right? I was old enough to actually witnessed the Apollo landings and it made an incredible impression on me and on millions of my fellow baby boomers and that's one of the reasons why we had such a huge technical workforce that enabled things like the internet to come about, the biotechnology. It doesn't actually matter if you go into space, if you get inspired to uh, do uh, science and technology and engineering or mathematics based on seeing something happen in space, you're going to find a productive place in our economy and you're going to make a difference for our nation and the world. And, and I think that's what we're on the cusp of now with, with Artemis. And the cool thing about Artemis, I was, this past uh, weekend, I was at my daughter's graduation from college, and one of the things I noticed was how wonderfully diverse the college graduating class was. Well, we don't find that as much in the STEM fields, right? So the, the STEM fields have, have tended not to have the same proportion of women or people of color. and What NASA is trying to do with Artemis in addition to doing the technical challenge of landing on the moon is provide more representation. So we're going to have both the first woman and the first person of color. And really if you look at the astronaut candidates for the Artemis program, they look like America. And that diversity is incredibly important. It's important because it gives people the idea that you know they can achieve these things too. And I think back in the Apollo era, Again, at the time, different, you know, world, different circumstances. You know, having a bunch of, of fighter pilots who uh, could do this moon landing, uh, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily something that everybody could identify with, and and, and this is just going to be so much more, I think, impactful on what they're starting to call the Artemis generation of students growing up now who are going to be witnessing these moon landings going forward.
0: Very exciting things to look forward to. Um... We've been speaking with Frank Slazer. He's the president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our new summer intern is Caroline Brockler. Caroline, welcome to the show. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.